This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast, part of the Demcast family of podcasts. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Today, two of our state's top Democrats join us to discuss, well, everything that has happened since the beginning of the year. Shasti Conrad is chair of the King County Democrats, and Will Casey is communications director for the Washington State Democrats, and they weigh in on the inauguration, President Biden's first day in office, and what we can be pushing for as progressives. We also talk about the January 6th insurrection, how it connects to hate groups here at home, and about what it's gonna take to disempower and delegitimize these forces going forward. That is all ahead. So there has been so much that has happened in the first 20 days of this year between the inauguration and the insurrection that I thought uh, we would convene our panel to discuss it and specifically talk about the ways that it impacts us here in Washington and also to talk about what we as activists can be doing. So with us are Will Casey, Communications Director for the Washington State Democrats. Hello to you, Will. Hey, Stefan. Always, always happy to be here. Thanks. And our friend Shasti Conrad. She is chair of the King County Democrats. Hi, Shasti. Hi, Stefan. So before we started, I, I said, let's start by talking about the inauguration, because uh, I feel like a lot of us didn't get a lot of joy over the last few weeks. You know, with the, the we had victories, but like Biden's uh, win was endlessly contested. Um, we got to enjoy the, the Senate runoff victory in Georgia for like five minutes before the insurrection. So uh, yesterday we had our inauguration. Um, it was a day long series of events. It culminated in uh, a fireworks show that I'm pretty sure used all the fireworks. I, I don't think there are any left anywhere. Uh, so how, Shasi, how are we feeling? How are you feeling after yesterday? Yeah, I, I, I kept having this feeling of like, what is this? Oh, it's joy. <laughs> oh, this is what joy feels like. Oh, happy. I have not felt like this relief. Um, I, yeah, it was, I, I've been in politics for a while. And so I was expecting to be like, oh, it'll be a nice day. But I was a little bit, you know, like a little cynical about it. And I was just overwhelmed with emotion of just how much relief and how beautiful I thought everything went. And um, yeah, I, I'm still I'm still trying to ride high on just like, wow. Wow, we did this. I am feeling utter relief too, and I think I, I actually allow myself to feel joy for the first time as well. What, what, what was your day? Actually, before we move on to that, Shasti, I have to mention you had some hot takes on just how cozy Bernie looked at the inauguration yesterday. Yeah, that that meme. I don't and ever. I I already know. I don't have to describe it because everyone has already seen it. Um, but I I love that Bernie being Bernie in the most Bernie way possible. Just like rode the internet all day yesterday. Um, and uh, those mittens are. Um, he has had those mittens for a long time. I've seen them live um, and in person. Um, that is one of four jackets that he has. Um, and uh, and that is exactly who Bernie is, like sitting by himself, socially distant from everybody with his mittens and, you know, look like an envelope and like maybe a receipt. That's that's peak Bernie. It looked like he was out running errands, right? It's like a, <laughs> after this inauguration thing, I am going to go to the dry cleaner and then maybe drop off some postage. That's what I'm going to. That's my Bernie impression. I don't know. Uh, Will, how are you? How are you feeling today? I'm feeling great. I mean, it's uh, it's honestly, as Shasta was saying, you know, I, I think I've gotten so used to just the, uh, the the fresh hell that awaits you on Twitter every morning of the Trump era that. Uh, you know, just waking up without a fascist in the Oval Office is is a, is a new emotion. It takes it takes some getting used to. To be honest, it's a low bar. That's a very low yeah. bar. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, at the state party, you know, I'm on the the White House's official press list 
not a sentence I ever thought I'd be saying, but uh, I'm like a little irritated already at the the amount of just uh, the volume in my inbox of like this amazing executive order, that amazing executive order. I'm like, okay, this is good news, but like I also have to work. So, you know. (laughs) Well, let's talk about all those executive orders because what an amazing day one. Uh, 17 of them in all, uh, rejoining uh, Paris Climate Accords, ending the travel ban, strengthening DACA, shutting down the border wall. uh, The Keystone Pipeline was shut down. uh, Off to a great start. Going forward, let's talk about some of the core things that you would like to see from a Biden administration. Shasti, let's start with you. I mean, I think it's what we always want, especially from when there's Democrats in leadership, better access to affordable health care, um, better access to public edu- funds for public education. Um, you know, I, I was thrilled to see that he mandated masks um, and that he's taking COVID so seriously. Um, but, you know, like and I think also like kudos to the to the Biden Harris administration but also a big kudos to the organized left um the reason why they knew they needed to lead with those executive orders is because of how strong the progressive movement has been to say we will be your partner we will do this but you have to give us something you have to show that you're willing to work with us or these next four years aren't going to be very nice. And I think that it was a really wonderful signal that there is a willingness to work together across the Democratic Party spectrum to get good things done. Will, I see you nodding your head. You agree with that? Yeah. And I think beyond the uh, specific issues, I think just a recognition that, you know, we only have one functioning political party right now. Right. I'm I have no patience at this point for trying to work with the people who objected to your own democratic election for, I don't know, a month and a half just for their own personal uh, political gain. And so, yeah, I think the fact that he's moving so swiftly, we've already got an immigration, comprehensive immigration reform bill on its way to Congress, um, you know, taking no, uh, you know, pause to let Mitch McConnell stall this agenda is is critically important. So So we know that we're going to be pushing as progressives for bold measures. We also know the pitfalls along the way. And, you know, Shasti, you were in the White House during the ACA. Uh, This was, of course, Obama's signature legislation in his first term. You watched it slowly get watered down. I wonder if you could talk about that experience and how you think that can be instructive right now as we move forward in these first few days. Yes. um, And I actually think this is where um, Biden's experience in the Senate um, is so valuable because and President Obama has spoken about this. He wrote about it in his book. So I'm not like revealing too much of like behind the scenes secrets. But, you know, I think part of his naivete in walking into um, into the White House was that he really did at his at his core believed that you could lead with sound policy and that both sides would be want would want to work together to move something forward and and so the Affordable Care Act was the first big, it was like the big campaign promise that Obama had run on. And it was like, I'm going to get this done. And then what happened through that process was, I remember, I saw the first bill, it was like public option. It was, you know, sort of the dream that we talk about. And then I watched as both, both parties, not just the Republicans, both parties basically broke that bill down to the point where just to be able to get, they just wanted to get something. I mean, the rhetoric within the White House was, okay, just get anything passed. 
and then we will add to it and build on it after the fact. But like it just whatever it is, it's a baseline. We'll start there. But the problem is we spent so much political capital in getting a watered down bill that nobody liked through that there was nothing left to be able to do anything bold. And I think it also contributed to the losses in the House um, and losing the Senate, you know, in um, 2010. How so? Can you talk about that? Well, like, I mean, we sp- we had spent all the political capital and the American public had wanted a bold, um, affordable care act. Like they'd wanted they'd wanted something that looked like the public option. And Obama had come in under this like this guy will is going to save the day. He's going to change the way we do politics and he's going to get big things done. And then when. He couldn't even, it took, A, it took forever. I mean, it took a really long time to go through that process. And then when it wasn't what we had hoped for and nobody really felt great, like they wanted to champion it, it lost credibility with both internal D.C. politics um, because it wore down all of the capital with the with the outside groups, with the political sort of, you know, um, captains that, that operate in Congress and, and in that space, but also the American public had lost faith. And so what I think what we what is exciting to see from just these executive orders, but also knowing Biden's experience in how Congress works is that they know they have like there is a window. Like these two years are the window to be bold and get things done because there are no guarantees. And that's how Democrats have got to be thinking and moving. There can't be we can't be incremental at this point because that will lead to a loss. If you want to win in the midterms, you have to be bold. And so I I do think that hopefully they learn those lessons from the Affordable Care Act. Yeah, you're talking about momentum and you're talking about keeping, yeah, the, the wind at our backs uh, with, with a series of wins that keep people engaged. Because as you say, you know, we may have two years at this, you know, to, to really rescue our democracy. And Will, one of the things that you've said as being a problem here is Democrats not being able to adequately take credit for their wins. So I'll ask you why you think that is and how you think we fix that. Well, I think it's it's a multifaceted problem for sure. Um, but to you know be as succinct about this as possible, I think it's it's truly a, a shift in overall philosophy, right? Like we have to understand that the era of small government is over, right? Like this is something that we can no longer afford to try. I mean, like Ezra Klein had a great piece in uh, the New York Times uh, today talking about this philosophy of making sure that it's it's visible to people that government is helping them. This is a you know an argument Bernie and Warren and progressives have been making for a very long time, um, but particularly in this media environment where there is no ability to have a centralized policy rollout that covers, that blankets the news um, for like a sufficient uh, period of time to really trickle down to your average American voter. Right. Because, frankly, you know, we've uh, seen polarization in this country, not just among people who are engaged, but between people who treat politics like a hobby or like, uh, you know, a civic duty. And they're very, very engaged and they devote time to it versus people who have just tuned out in the last four years. Right. And if there's anything we saw in the Trump era, it's that. You know, for folks who were not consuming a lot of political media, getting a letter from the president with his signature that says, I just sent you a check, was an extremely powerful political tool. And that's not the reason why we should be helping people. We should be helping people because it's the right thing to do. But in doing that, we need to make sure that people understand government is how we come together and how we, 
you know, support those who are, you know, in the worst uh, shape because of this pandemic and how we solve these enormous problems that we're all facing and have been facing, frankly, for my entire adult life. Um, so I think that that's really how we need to move forward here. We cannot, I mean, in Ezra's piece, there was a, he was talking about how Democrats were celebrating the fact that they were able to get people to sign up for the ACA without realizing that it was a government program. Like that is so completely 180 degrees from where we need to be now um, because that's just this is the information ecosystem we're living in. The era of small government is over. Um, I think we need to put that on some merch and we need to get that out right away. Uh, I love that. Um, I want to talk a little bit about some of our real world obstacles here because we know what they are. Um, Namely, new kingmaker, uh, West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin, uh, Arizona Senator Kirsten Sinema. Um, Manchin in particular said he will not vote to end the filibuster. Uh, He has vocally opposed any kind of climate legislation, which makes sense. He comes from coal country. Shasti, I wonder how you think about this problem and 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 how you how you would approach it yeah i think i mean i think to go off of what will was saying is um you know this is an opportunity to be bold um and to lean into that we should be proud of big government and to have someone like joe manchin holding the entire process um hostage is not like that's not who we should be playing to. We should be playing to the, you know, 70 over the 70% of Americans who want something closer to a Medicare for all option. We should be looking at the 90% of folks who want um, gun, uh, gun reform. You know, we should be looking to the American people that like, we actually agree on a lot more than what if you were listening to Fox News and how if you were sometimes listening to like MSNBC, if you were listening to those voices or the most scared part of the Democratic Party, it would feel like there was still this polarization. But that's not actually what's happening. I think and I feel weird saying it, but we as Democrats have to take a page out of the Republican playbook which is if when they were doing this like if they were if they had the same scenario that we have right now they would be forcing susan collins to be caucusing with the democrats they would be pushing to say and and it would be like a get in line this is what we are doing and joe manchin wouldn't have a chance to say anything and instead you know the way the system works we're letting someone who should be treated as fringe who's basically a Republican and Democrats clothing, you know, hold the whole system. And that that's just we can't let that happen. Well, I mean, Shasti's making fantastic points. How does Schumer get Manchin on board? And do we have a role to play as citizen activists? Uh, I think so. Uh, I think there's a couple of, of ways that we need to realize that we have power in the situation. Right. So first of all, it's not Joe Manchin. It's literally every senator. Right. I mean, we have to have literally the entire caucus together to do anything. And I am tired, frankly, after the Trump era of being told that people, uh, you know, those who already agree with us are not valuable. And it's the people who are you know, putting their heads in the sand in the middle of a global pandemic that's now, you know, killed 400,000 Americans. Um, and if Mitt Romney is going to, quote, you know, call this uh, COVID relief package not timely, then, you know, this is the perfect issue to say, like, this is the time 
Um, do, do you want to be the one senator standing between all of your constituents and the economic relief that they need so their small businesses can reopen? Like, of course not. Also, uh, I just want to make a point about the numbers here. Uh, in 2018, right, when we had our blue wave, Joe Manchin won his general election with 29, by 29,000 votes, roughly, 290,000 to 271,000 votes. Um, in his primary, which he did handily win, you know, 70% of the vote there, he still, you know, there were almost 50,000 voters who did not support him. They voted for a more liberal candidate. And those people played the game and voted for Joe. Right. And so it's not just us here in, in Washington state. It's not just here in the blue states. There are people who are organized in these home states. And that is more than double, if I'm doing the math correctly, his margin of victory. Right. So it's not just that we need Joe Manchin to keep the Senate together. Of course, that's true. Um, you know, we should also be pushing for D.C. statehood so that, you know, a certain senator from West Virginia is not the only person holding up the agenda. Here, here. Um, yeah. And frankly, um, for Joe Manchin's own, you know, vain political future, he should want that because he would probably benefit in West Virginia from a couple of token votes, um, you know, where he's allowed to break from the party. And if we have two senators who are reliable out of D.C., that allows him to be the, you know, the sole no vote on some sort of climate bill as a token um, messaging, you know, priority or what have you. So um, all of this is to say uh, you know, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and frankly, uh, Patty Murray and Maria Cantwell have just as much power as Joe Manchin does, because any single one of them deciding to do uh, to be a no vote on something will hold up an entire bill hostage. That all being said, we don't have time to play around with this. Right. Like we just do not have time, um, you know, to mess around and find out what happens if we let uh, the, the, the narrative of the day be Democrats in disarray. Um, and so, you know, Manchin needs to be talked to in the same way that LBJ or FDR um, would talk to any recalcitrant, um, you know, Democratic senator back in their time about passing Social Security or Medicare. So uh, it's time to get on board. And we've seen some of those photos of LBJ kind of looming over somebody, buttonholing them. So, yeah, yeah, those images are uh, indelible. I want to ask this question from a different angle, because both of you have noted um, how your age impacts your view of politics right now. You couple of youngster millennials and uh, you you see things differently than people from my generation. So members of Congress who lived through the 90s, I think, are scarred by, you know, from losing the House to Newt Gingrich. Uh, having to triangulate with Bill Clinton over neoliberalism and other things. Um, younger members just simply don't have that baggage. And I'm wondering how, Shasti, how we make sure that Biden thinks and acts like the latter instead of the former. Uh, yeah, and I think it, I think it is a really legitimate uh Concern. I was watching yesterday, you know, on MSNBC, and the uh, Claire McCaskill said the average age in the Senate is seventy. Mm. Um, and so, you know, and and when you see these battles between, you know, like the Squad and Nancy Pelosi, I mean, you are you're talking about millennials, and it's not even Nancy Pelosi is not even a boomer. <laughs> she, you know, I mean, so so it is some of those generational divides and I think experiences of being in the Democratic Party. I mean, as a as a millennial myself, you know, I haven't known in my in my adult life, 
I have not known a Republican Party that was reasonable and willing to work together. Um, I have lived, I was a a junior in high school when 9-11 happened, and I saw how the Republican Party went immediately into the entire United States, but led by the Republican Party, went into a, you know, everything was about security and that, you know, they had the, the moral high ground. And so there was no room for for any sort of negotiation. Also, the immediate target of who they demonized were brown people. So as, you know, also as demographics are shifting in millennial and Gen Z and, you know, and, and younger than Gen Z look more and more like me and less and less like Joe Manchin and like, you know, uh, um, you know, Mitch McConnell, we have a different lived experience in the United States that we aren't, it, it, it informs uh, every, every way that we look at the world. It, it informs our lens when we look at policy, it informs the way in which we do business. And so it will be impossible for us. We know we can't wait. I mean, I think part of, you know, I've been a lot of discussion around um, women of color and, and how in 2018 it was really the year of the woman. And I think part of what you saw in 2020 for women of color was we can't leave our future in the hands of anybody else. Even white women will not advocate for us the way in which we have to advocate for ourselves. And that is different than any of the other generations who have been able to be in power, um, you know, in Congress since the beginning of time. And I think even just seeing the image of, you know, Vice President Kamala Harris next to President Obama, that's just in the last, you know, like eight, 12 years. And then you look at all of the people before them, we are headed in a different direction. So you have to operate differently than how we've done it before. Well, I will ask this this question in terms of a, a time imperative, because we know that uh, Obama lost a lot of time trying to work across the aisle in his early days. And I'm wondering, do you worry about Biden losing time trying to work with the GOP? What are some of the early signals that you're getting there? Uh, I don't worry about that at all, honestly. Um, which maybe is a little bit naive, but I think that it's more of a recognition of what Shasti is saying is that, you know, our lived experience is, is that, you know, this need for big, bold ideas is frequently dismissed by people who have been in the party for a long time, but that's because they are not the ones who are paying the price for continually kicking the can, the, the can down the road, right? Like we haven't raised the minimum wage in this country since I was in elementary school at the federal level, like this is absurd. Um, and you know, and like, as just like any sort of, you know, deferred action, right. It gets more and more expensive and more and more difficult the longer you put it off. It's like trying not paying more than the minimum payment on your credit card, uh, or your student loans for that matter, uh, for a much more recognizable situation here. But to be quite honest, I, I think that if there is any, uh, you know, value to be gained from this emergency that we are still in 10 months later. Um, it's that it is a very clear mandate that we've won back the Senate on the grounds that Mitch McConnell um, refused to bring a vote for $2,000 checks to the floor. That's what happened, right? Like I've heard from so many people who were organizing on the ground in Georgia that that is what shifted the narrative there, right? And so his majority, his ability to accomplish literally anything entirely depends on passing effective and adequate to the scale of the problem um, pandemic relief, right? And that is not a 
trenched, you know, uh, partisan goal from 30 years ago, right? That's not something that we've been fighting about and has been part of, uh, you know, a core sort of intra-democratic party debate. This is something that's a, you know, fresh and emergent crisis, and we need to act quickly to deal with it, right? And most importantly, there's an objectively correct solution, right? Dump as much money as you need to into the economy to keep things going until everyone can get vaccinated, and six months from now, we should be back to normal. Right. And if there's if Mitch McConnell refuses to bring that to a vote, if Mitch, if Mitt Romney or Susan Collins are going to, you know, continue to hold this uh, bill up and, and not break ranks with McConnell to, to vote for cloture, then that's it. Right. Like it's too, too bad. Right. And uh, if Joe Manchin wants to stay in the way of that, then I think we just need to have a godfather moment and make him an offer he can't refuse. If folks are worried about millennials, which, by the way, millennials are 40, you know, like I'm I'm 36. And I do think I mean, one great image of this. Right. Is that a where was AOC yesterday? She was not sitting for pomp and circumstance. She was on the strike line um, with union workers at Hunts Point. Um, but, you know, if you're worried about millennials, wait until Gen Z gets in there. Um, some folks know that this past year, this past cycle, I um, launched an organization called Control Z that was about helping to get Gen Z involved. And um, one of the best quotes that I come back to is one of my heroes is Jamie Margol, and she's an 18-year-old climate uh, youth climate activist. And she said, when you're talking about survival, it, we can't talk about incrementalism. This is for Gen Z. This is their this is their life. This is their future. They are looking at a future that is going to be much worse than their parents. And they and and whether or not they they make it through, whether the planet survives. And so there is a fire there of we aren't going to wait for you. We're not going to play scared. We're not going to play small. The era of small government is dead. Like this is we're done. We have to play big and bold at every level because this is what's on the line. Our survival as a people, our survival as a country, um, our survival as a democracy, it's on the line. And so that's the type of energy that millennials and Gen Z are bringing because it's our future and we have to, um, you know, so that's what I think people really need to grasp and understand and not look at it from a fear place, but look at it as like, how do I get, how do I be an ally and throw in and support these voices that are coming through to fight for what will benefit all of us? Uh, there's there's so much to learn uh, across the board from everything that you're talking about. And in fact, you and I are scheduling to uh, to do a segment just talking about Control Z. So uh, watch this space. Um, you know, Will, you had kind of a, a narrative forming about GOP in disarray. And I wanted to relate to that to something that's happening back here at home. Uh, so Danny Westneat, who writes for The Times, just uh, wrote about a civil war with the GOP here in Washington. Uh, apparently, the state GOP Central Committee uh, voted to censure uh, Representatives Newhouse and Jamie Herrera Butler for voting for impeachment. Um, and Shasti, your counterpart, the new chair of the King County Democrats, Joshua Freed, said they, quote, let themselves be weaponized by liberals in opposition to their own oath. What can you tell us about what's happening here? Oh, well, I will say about my uh, counterpart, Joshua Freed, um, is that he he did release a statement condemning mainstream Republicans. Um, and I initially thought like, oh, OK, he's he's actually condemning the insurrectionists. And no, he was actually condemning, like, as you said, Newhouse and, and Herrera Butler. And I just thought they've lost their soul. I mean, they really the Republicans have lost all ground um, for 
you just, I mean, what, what can you say to that? I mean, they have doubled down on choosing people who push democracy to the brink, who are choosing white supremacy over the values that are supposed to create a peaceful society where we're able to work together. Um, and Joshua Freed continues to not condemn that violence. And he continues to try to turn it around and, and create this false equivalence of the protests um, that were happening this summer around Black Lives Matter. And I keep saying, okay, what are you, you all are fighting against a free and fair election that has been certified by every state in this country and, and, and has shown no sign of fraud. You've lost every lawsuit that, that you've tried to wage. Black Lives Matter is about trying to protect people's lives who are dying at the hands of law enforcement. Hundreds and thousands of people have died. And that's what we're like, it's not the same. And Freed cannot, Freed and the GOP cannot grasp this. And Will has been an amazing ally um, in, in really battling the, these folks because it is disgusting. Well, yeah, I mean, Will, I want to get your take on all of this. And, and I'll also just ask you, uh, do you see a coming split here in the GOP, both nationally and here at home? Uh, yes, temporarily, but it's going to be the shortest civil war uh, that you'll ever witness, right? It'll probably be over by March, um, and, and by which I mean, you know, the inmates will completely cement their control of the asylum, right? Um, and, and thank you, Shasti, for that compliment. <laughs> you know, what else would I be doing, I guess? Um, but honestly, it's, it's, it's frankly uh, frustrating and disturbing how little uh, these people seem to understand that they've had a chance to reel these forces in um, and control these elements of their party for over a year and a half now. Um, I mean, Christ, in December of 2019, we had a report from a couple of former uh, FBI agents come out and say one of the uh, state legislators in the Republican caucus was connected to domestic terrorism. Like these people were in 2016 following a judge's family through the grocery store and stalking the family of a sheriff in Oregon. And then they took over a federal building and held it at gunpoint for several days. Like, this is not new. And just a year ago, or no, in 2019 also, we had the Oregon Senate uh, caucus, who were Republicans, abandon the state of Oregon to try and stop a vote on a climate bill. And then when they were called out for their bull my language there was one of their members response was if the state patrol is going to come and get us they better send orphans and bachelors because they were implying they're going to murder the police like this is not a party of law and order this is a party of minority rule and uh so to the extent that there is a split it is going to get resolved quickly which is all the more reason why we have to make sure that we are bold and do not cede any ground to these people because the way forward here is not uh, accommodation, right? It is absolute demolishing um, of them and their platform at the ballot box over and over and over again until they start to show some responsibility. Um, and I realize I'm monologuing here for a minute, but if you'll excuse me, um, I also have just one last word here for uh, Jamie Herbert Butler and Danny House. Like, great, literally at 1159, uh, you come through here. Right. And now Kim Wyman is on you know, NPR yesterday saying that she might leave the Republican Party. Like the time to join the opposition party to fascism was when we were the opposition party. Right. Like we won without these people. Um, it is their mess to clean up now. Right. Like they had the time to do something. They have created a movement that refuses to listen to any mainstream media or anyone with a D after their name. And it is their responsibility to fix this mess 
It is our responsibility to govern and clean up the garbage that they have left us. We are not responsible for unification with white supremacists. You are you're basically saying, you know, that you're seeing a lot of these people who are sort of trying to rehab their 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 images and distance themselves from Trumpism. You see you see hints of it with McConnell. You see hints of it with Kevin McCarthy. But we know where all this extremism leads. Right. Which it leads to insurrection at the Capitol. It, we also had an incursion onto the grounds of the governor's mansion here in Washington. And, you know, will you've been sounding the alarm uh, for this for a long, long time. I'm wondering, like, what was going through your head when you were watching the events of January 6th? Um, I was just terrified, right? Because, I mean, like, I've been in these rooms, like, I've seen what these people say to each other when they think no one is watching, um, you know, the way that they organize. And, and honestly, uh, there's a phrase I think all of us need to start becoming a lot more familiar with, which is stochastic terrorism. Right. Which is which is basically the the concept that it is not an order that goes out from people like Donald Trump, although he does definitely incite these folks. Um, It is an example and rhetoric that pollutes their their entire informational ecosystem and gives them the expectation that if they take action, if individual people incite or commit acts of violence, they are going to be applauded. They're going to be, you know, raised up as heroes. Like, for example, Kyle Rittenhouse. You know, his entire legal bills were paid by grassroots donors, you know, after his story was amplified by Republican elected officials and public and Republican, you know, propaganda networks, most importantly, Fox News. And so this kind of, you know, uh, violence is not going to stop unless it is made abundantly clear to these people by the people they still respect that this is unacceptable behavior. Shasti, I know that you you worked in D.C. for many years. I'm wondering what your experience is, what what was going through your head on on January 6th? Yeah, I mean, I think like everybody, it was absolute horror. And I I had friends who were on on the Hill. I had a friend who was barricaded in Pramila's office um, and who was sending out messages saying, like, if I don't make it out, you know. Um, And so it was... Um, it was as real as it could be. I mean, I remember, like I said earlier, I was in high school when 9-11 happened. And I remember the like sheer horror of like, how could this happen? And then the terror of, you know, we didn't know, was it going to happen here? Who else was involved? And um, that feeling certainly permeated. um, And then I think then the the rage of the response, I think particularly for people of color, it was this, like, it's this, you're getting traumatized over and over because it's the initial horror of this is happening. And then you're watching as, you know, like police are high-fiving and taking selfies with these people. And then, you know, like there was this footage that came out just a few days ago where one of the guards is like, excuse me, you know, would you all mind? Like, could you please, like, could you please move, you know? And as they're, as they are taking over the Senate chambers and in my mind, I go through, you know, George Floyd and Laquan McDonald and, you know, like so many people who, my God, if they had been given the opportunity to be like, excuse me, please, would you mind if you, instead of being murdered, you know, it, it just, it, it fills you with such rage and like just sick to my stomach and just afraid. I mean, and also that like, there's real threats. I mean, Will and I had this conversation, you know, with what was happening back here in Washington state. And, you know, like I'm a 
I'm a now somewhat recognized woman of color leader in the Democratic Party. I know I'm on lists. Like I know that I know that these folks are um, know who I am, and it does scare me, you know. And 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 you know, do you talk about that, or does that just like rev them up and give people ideas? And and how do you handle that? And and um, I believe in the role. I believe in the work that we're doing. I think it's incredibly important, but it does come at a real stake. And again, I saw this thing on Twitter where it was like, you know, when we lost an election where there was probably actual fraud, you know what we did was we marched, we made pink hats, you know, we like, we talked about women power. Like, that's what we did. You all are like literally leading sedition in an insurrection at the Capitol. And you're, you know, the one dude's getting organic food while he's in, you know, custody for a minute. Like, it's just, it's been, I've felt so exhausted and so overwhelmed by all of it. And one of the things too, that I just, I really had to tell myself and then also really wanted to say it for other people is like, we can't normalize this type of trauma. Like we can't normalize that. Like this is just business and this is just how it's going to be. That's why in 2021, I'm all about accountability. Like these folks, like Will was saying, we have to make the consequences for what these people did so strong and so big that no one will ever try it again. Otherwise, they turn into heroes, they high-five each other, they spend a night in jail, and they hang out with their friends, and they go right back to it. And we cannot let that happen. There's no unity without accountability. What do those consequences look like in your mind? I mean, I think an actual like trial, and I think actually being held in jail for life. Um, if, you know, I think um, we should make them... I mean. You know, like all the, the my pillow guy lost, you know, like his sort of deals of putting his products in. I mean, like, you have to hit them where it hurts. And for like these types of corporate assholes, that's the only thing they care about. You have to hit them in the pocketbook. Like, you know, as, as it see, it maybe seems empty to like or kind of funny to like take away um, Trump's access to Twitter. But in in a way, that is what he cares about. So it is like it's small. I think it should also come with jail time and a trial and all of that, but also really hitting them where it hurts and making sure that they are dead to society because we just can't lionize them. And we just can't like otherwise they really do go back to their corners where they're all just ramping each other up and saying, like, good job, buddy. Like, let's do it again. And you're a hero. And, and every I studied international development. Every country that has dealt with with domestic terrorism has had to fight that exact same scenario where you cannot turn heroes into people who are on the front lines creating terror. You just can't do it. And so we can't allow that. Will, you actually infiltrated some of these groups here at home. And I'm wondering, first, if you can tell us a little bit about that experience and then how you would assess the threat going forward. I mean, my second week at the jo- on the job here was driving to Spokane and, you know, sitting incognito in a fundraiser that Matt Shea was having for his Liberty State Movement, which was just a shell organization for his, like, white supremacist terrorism. Um, and uh, I think that that's something that we um, need to, you know, recognize is that this stuff is happening with the cover of legitimacy by people who are you know, elected officials, right? And that same bill for Liberty State was reintroduced this session by the guy who replaced Matt Shea in the legislature. So it's not like this is going going anywhere. Um, And I think the thing that's 
really shocking and frustrating to me is that when we have these people, I mean, and to be clear, like by infiltrating, I identified some people who wanted to, you know, make good on their time invested, you know, in, in these organizations and basically just encourage them to talk to the folks who are doing the official investigation, right? Like this is um, something that is should and was handled by law enforcement, not like the political process. Um, but I, I think it's very important for people to understand that these folks are organized. They are relying on, you know, training that a lot of them did receive, some of them in the military themselves um, and others, you know, who have been radicalized by um, various online platforms. But this is something that is not going to go away unless there is a broader cultural movement here. Right. Like we need more um, uh, robust uh structures for getting people like Trump off Twitter earlier than this stuff. But we also need to realize that, you know, the 14th Amendment has a provision in it to, to bar people from office because we passed it after we had a civil war, right? Like the last time that we uh, had this level of division in this country, we did literally fight a war over it. And like we had to remain, you know, we had to occupy the South with federal troops for a generation almost. Um, and, you know, it was only because we got tired of, uh, you know, northern moderates got tired of supporting that financially and, and with the drain on, on, you know, overall cultural resources. And we gave up and let Jim Crow, you know, become the, the law of the land. And so that is the thing that we have to learn from. Right. We cannot repeat those mistakes of 150 years ago. We have to make sure that everyone who was involved in this is held fully accountable. I mean, just to put one concrete example on the end of here. Um, the panic buttons were removed from Ayanna Presley's office without her staff's knowledge. That is not something that happened that day. Somebody is responsible for that. And until we know who it is, we've got to make sure that like our members of Congress are safe and secure and that we can actually have accountability for this stuff. Right. Like crimes were committed here. You mentioned the uh, the end of Reconstruction, and I would just point out that the end of Reconstruction came about because of a disputed election. So as, as Mark Twain once said, uh, history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. You know, I, I will ask both of you as we kind of wrap up this part of the conversation, if you see January 6th as the culmination of something or the beginning. I mean, we were anticipating action in all 50 states on uh, on, on Inauguration Day, but uh, they didn't materialize. We still know the threat is ongoing. Shasti, what is your what does your gut say here? I would like and I would like to believe that it was the end, but I um, every part of my being knows that's not true. Um, one of the stats that came up um, during, you know, sort of as you were saying around history is like, you know, Hitler led a failed sort of coup attempt, went to jail, wrote Mein Kampf, came back and in 11 years, right, like took over um, German government. And so I think we have to take this very seriously. Um, I you know, in October ahead of the November elections, I was at my wit's end because I was really terrified about what was going to happen in November. And I um, and when that didn't, you know, when it didn't materialize and we won um, and then it was quiet and I sort of was like, you know, this is the most most uh, time of it would be a possibility for violence will be between this period and Inauguration Day. And I did allow myself to get lulled into some in a sense of sort of complacency of like well it's not happening it's not happening and what the six showed us was that they were plotting right. they were planning they were you know they, they were 
they were absolutely mapping exactly what they were going to do and and there were they had sweatshirts in in ball in balls with the um emblazoned with the the date so you know like you have to i mean it's it's so deep um that i think it is it is the beginning um but this is why like i said earlier you have to have that accountability and you have to stop it in its tracks one quick thing i wanted to just sort of tie together is you know we spent much of 2020 like you know particularly white people like learning the history um of the african-american experience in the united states really trying to educate themselves on racism and one of the things was learning about how slave patrols as you mentioned in the reconstruction era led directly to the creation and to our modern day law enforcement and the you know i I said, you know, I've, I've said it, but I think we have to keep saying it. This is why defund the police is so important. And, and seeing, I think, for particularly for white people, seeing it on their screens as, you know, the law enforcement, capital police are, are, are stationed to protect the capital. And they can't even do that. And in fact, some of them are aiding it and supporting it. That is happening at every level of law enforcement across this entire country. They are un- it's it's not even about infiltration. It's it's about maintaining that type of white supremacy. And so that is why activists and people of color scream defund the police and look for com- other community models to take care and support the community because it doesn't work. And so I just think that's a really important point that we need to keep returning to as we are talking about how do we battle white supremacy those lessons that you we've been spent the last six months learning going to your book clubs and whatnot it is directly related to what you saw on january 6th we obviously have a lot of work to do over the next couple of years pushing back against uh, these sorts of forces and then pushing on the Biden administration for for bold progressive legislation i'm wondering how each of you see your role in that, will what? How do you see your your work here? Uh, well, you know, in the next week or so, I'll be uh, my time at the party will be coming to a close. But I'm definitely going to stay engaged. Um, you know, helping to support folks like Shasti who are doing such incredibly good work. Um, you know, making sure that our elected officials are still you know speaking plainly and conveying that you know the truth of what's going on to their colleagues and making sure that we get solutions to these crises that we've lived our entire adult lives. Um, through, frankly, um, and we're proposing solutions that are equal to those problems. So I think this is something that is only, you know, the beginning of our work. Um, But if we choose to make it so, this can be the beginning of the end of uh, these hostile movements, right? Like we have the power to come together and demand better from our elected officials, to demand better from our neighbors and demand better from the institutions that are supposed to serve us. So I think that there's a lot of work left to do, but it's also, you know, recognizing that uh, we have an opportunity here to really make some positive change, right? And like, I think that there is a natural suspicion and skepticism that is well-earned, particularly among communities of color of Democrats once we take power. Um, But I think that the last 24 hours or so has shown you that the Biden administration has heard a lot of those concerns and they are moving swiftly. 
So I think that the, the primary role that we all have to play is making sure that when those wins happen, not that we celebrate them as victories and we pat ourselves on the back, but that we are telling all the same folks who we were trying to get to knock doors or make donations or make phone calls to Congress about how these things are making positive impacts in their lives, right? Because a government that we don't see helping us is a government people are not going to turn out to support in 2022. I like that. I like that a lot. Um, Shasti, you are the the chair of the Democratic Party in the largest uh, county in the most populous county in the state here. You have an extraordinary role to play. I'm wondering how you see it in all this. Yeah, I mean, I got involved in this role because I saw that, you know, if if this place that, you know, across the country you look at is this like blue paradise, if we didn't have our act together and we didn't have a clear vision and a clear like, or, you know, organizing mechanism for how we were going to um, continue to push back against the Trump administration, but also like, who are we? What are we going to do? Then it was going to fail nationally. And so I see that my role as chair of King County Democrats is to continue to model that this is what a strong Democratic Party organization looks like, that we are moving forward, that we're doing the work and that like, there is no off year. There is no, I'm sorry to tell everybody, there's no break. We have to keep working. And, and the work that everyone did with Indivisible the last four years, thank you. And how like we need you to keep going yes. because it's just your target shifts a little bit because now it's about holding the administration and Congress accountable. And it is about making sure that it's still the will of the people. It's still exactly what you've been doing the last four years, but your target's a little bit different and we need you to keep doing that work. And I'm excited to be a part of that in a party role to help help work alongside you to do that. Well, we're so grateful for you. And as you say, you know, the King County really is can be and is a model for the rest of the nation. And, you know, Indivisible is uh, switching its uh, its tactics. Now we're going on offense and we're going on offense um, in order to uh, save and preserve democracy. And in fact, uh, just a quick plug, we will be speaking with uh, Leah Greenberg and Ezra Levin this Saturday at noon uh, for a town hall about Indivisible Guide 2.0. So I will have information about that in the show notes and we would love to see you all there. Uh, well, Shasti Conrad, as always, wonderful. Great to see you. Thank you so much, my friend. Thank you. Wonderful to be with you. And Will Casey, my brother, thank you for being here. Thank you, Stefan, and thank you to everyone in Indivisible Groups across the state. You all really do make the difference here. And that is it for today. I will have links to everything that we talked about at IndivisiblePodcast.org. Our email address is IndivisiblePodcast at gmail.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at IndivisiblePod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. and is part of the Demcast family of podcasts. Learn more about Demcast at DemcastUSA.com. Special thanks to Lori Caldwell. And as always, my thanks to you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.